Hello, and welcome back to the Feed Grass for Good podcast, brought to you by Hustler Equipment, the world's most innovative livestock feeding equipment. Each episode, we talk with a different sustainable farmer or expert in sustainable farming. This is our fifth episode, and today we're talking with Roderick Binney, the director and owner of Glen Lee Beef, based in Australia. Since beginning his herd back in 1973, Roderick's found success raising and breeding Charolais in stud and commercial capacities across a diverse range of country, from coastal New South Wales to the tablelands of central Queensland. Having dedicated most of his life to developing high-quality seed stock and prime stock, he's very optimistic about the pasture-based finishing systems and the grass-fed cattle industry. But his optimism is based on some very well-reasoned, market-driven observations, as you'll see. Hello, I'm Roderick Binney, and I'm uh, uh, the uh, director and owner of uh, Glenlee Beef and also Australian Grass-Fed Meats. I have uh, a lifelong history involved in the cattle industry, starting in Tasmania as a child with my parents, uh, starting a Charolais stud. Uh, Charolais cattle and uh, that evolved over many years uh, in Tasmania and uh, uh, around 10 years ago I moved to New South Wales to um, to return to the land and to cattle breeding as a as a full-time occupation and to grow the business to wherever I could. Previously I'd been involved in a range of retail businesses that I've owned and operated and also continued to operate the property with uh, operate the, the stud cattle business with my parents. So um, from the move to New South Wales uh, was immediately started expanding in all different ways. Um, Charolais due to their fast growth uh, and, and fast growth and high carcass traits lend themselves to processing very well um, and, and particularly to grass fed beef. The basis of our production system really was to um, finish cattle on uh, high quality pastures in the New England region of New South Wales and also in coastal New South Wales. A lot of these cattle weren't necessarily bred by ourselves. We purchased these cattle because I'm a stud breeder. I supply bulls to, to many, many farmers and they produce progeny. So I was able to buy back many progeny by my biogenetics that I produce. And that gave us some predictability of outcomes. We then grew those cattle out in a, in a range of different ways uh, all grass-based and i said on on temperate and tropical pastures and um, we then um, process those animals at uh, and and box the meat and send it around the world there is a very significant difference the breed in australia is quite different in its phenotype or its body type and make up to the original cattle from france and also from England and other parts of Europe. The Charolais that have evolved in Australia are, are, are a more moderate framed, um, uh, a more balanced animal in relation to their muscle and fat cover, where in Europe they're a very big animal uh, with, a very, with a huge amount of muscle and very hard to finish at, at normal slaughter weights. Um, some of those bloodlines can be blended in to give us certain characteristics, but in general, Australian Charolais are are bigger than uh, much are bigger than a lot of other breeds of cattle, but not as big as the as the French cattle, and um, uh, yeah, all all of the major breeds do very well on grass. The edge the Charolais have is that they grow faster, therefore reach slaughter weights younger when given adequate nutrition over other breeds, and have a higher yielding carcass. So they have some advantages, but they do need to 
well, any cattle that you're trying to finish on grass need high nutrition from the grass itself because, um, you know, uh, without it, they will not fatten. They will not be primed to, to kill and won't have high quality, won't have a high quality uh, meat eating characteristics. There's definitely been a change in perception of grass-fed beef, but there is also distinctly different types of grass-fed beef, beef in the market, and it's hard to distinguish those in, on some times. You know, animals that are young that have been fed on a high nutritional plane on high quality pastures have are a very high quality product and have a different uh, eating uh, experience, a different flavor and different texture to grain fed beef, for instance. But of course, in Western countries, specifically, I mean, you could say Europe, but certainly North America and obviously Australia, um, the consumer uh, has a perception or a demand today for knowing, uh, having some concept and knowing where their cattle, where their meat is coming from and how they're produced. And people, many people have the perception that feedlots are, are not natural. The animals aren't fed what they're biologically evolved eating. Whereas a grass fed animal, or animal out in the pasture, uh, eating, eating forage and grass is, is much more closer to nature. And they, that's what they want to eat. And as I said, the, from, a, from a consumer experience, there is a significant difference between a 100 or 150 day grain fed steak and a grass fed steak. Different flavor, much more beefy, um, much more, not, not, not tougher, but it's a beefier flavor, less fat in it. There's less uh, intramuscular fat or marbling in a grass fed animal. And uh, it, uh, it also has a different flavor profile because you're obviously feeding, it's having a very different um, diet. To what an animal will do in a feedlot. In the last 10 to 15 years, it's been an exponential growth in the awareness of people and their, where their food comes from and an appreciation of farmers and the work that they do in that time. And of course, farmers are responding to that changing consumer sentiment by you know, producing branded products, which we produced with Australian grass-fed beef, um, uh, which was set up alongside Glen Lee beef, which is the uh, which is the which is the company or the not, not the company but the business I run that produces the genetics to produce the uh, to feed the uh, farmers who then supply our grass fed brand. So the way we differentiated was to develop our own brand, and we made uh, certain claims uh, relating to the brand in relation to the feeding and management of the animals. Um, included that was no antibiotics in the feed because obviously they're eating natural pasture uh, even to the point where if an animal did need to be treated for some sort of injury or illness we removed that animal from the program so we could maintain uh, the no antibiotics aspect of our production claims that's the crux of it is branding and and educating the wholesalers and 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 through people through the supply chain that take our brand on to market it whether it be in a restaurant or a butcher shop or a wholesaler that supplies a number of outlets, that we're a branded product, we're a premium product. And uh, the feedback has always been very positive because we've been able to consistently supply an even line of cattle uh, to, to keep producing meat for our brand. What the pandemic has brought out is probably um, the fact that a lot more people are cooking at home and they're thinking about their food a lot more. So it's 
increased a trend that was already very present about consumers wanting to know more about where their food comes from and how they're raised and the animal welfare outcomes. Um, so that's a trend that's been accelerated by COVID um, and therefore been a positive for grass-fed brands and grass-fed meat in general. In Australia, the drought broke in, in early 2020 in most areas and has been a very good seasonal conditions for the last 18 months, which looked like continuing for the foreseeable future, allowing for the herd rebuild and for allowing for uh, from drought, which was, you know, 20, 20, 2016 to 2019 was the worst drought uh, in New South Wales specifically for probably ever. And uh, it's it, it carried on from Queensland from previously and cattle numbers in Australia got to their lowest levels in 30 years. They got down to levels not seen since the early 1990s. And so that rebuild, that's millions of animals gone out of the system, literally millions. And that will take a number of years to recover to where it starts to balance the supply uh, demand equation. So we see uh, increased demand and reduced or constricted supply uh, well into the future. Um, into the foreseeable future in the next two to three years. Um, and, and of course, seasonal conditions, we will face other droughts. And by the time we've, <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll, the situation will turn and, and uh, supply will increase when times get dry again, because people will have to turn off animals. So um, it's a vicious cycle in Australia, but one that doesn't change. And you just learn to live with it and battle through the, the, the tough times and reap the rewards in the good times. Uh, and with the addition of the free trade due to England, as we, you know, being a first world country with 65 million consumers with similar taste palettes to Australians, because that's where a lot of Australians come from, and even um, uh, from an Anglo-Saxon background, um, um, I only see that as a very, very positive um, market driver. Um, and they will want grass-fed beef because that will be, they will feel that that's a and it is, it's not, it's also a perception, but it is also a reality that those animals are living a more natural life and uh, are, uh, are happy, happy animals cruising around in the paddock. You know, they don't have the stresses that animals do in, in intensive feedlots from heat and, uh, and um, you know, but not being socially distanced to being in a, in a, in a, in a rather, uh, rather restrictive um, area in large numbers. So it's uh, COVID in a lot of ways has been a positive for most rural industries, especially the livestock industries, in my view. Most of Australia is not suitable for finishing grass-fed cattle. Most, a lot, of, a lot more of Australia is suitable for producing grass-fed lamb or range-fed lamb, which all lamb generally is in Australia. There are feedlot animals, but it's in the minority. Um, uh, so uh, the... We've got a large country, a lot of producers, a lot of steps in the supply chain. There is flexibility there for all. Um, the question is, is probably on a smaller holding um, uh, uh, on higher rainfall country, producing, uh, having cows and calves is probably less efficient than that person having, buying in weaner cattle, young cattle from other producers with less, um, less, with country with less ability to grow high quality grass there. And that's what does happen. The, the high value country tends to be uh, fattening country and tends, doesn't tend to have breeding cattle. Whereas the more marginal country has the breeding cattle 
and where animals are retained there, they usually find their way into a feedlot or um, usually not on the farm, usually they're sold to a feedlot, but um, we're definitely seeing as land prices increase in these higher rainfall areas, we're seeing changes in land use and we're seeing people buying them for lifestyle properties and then leasing those properties to professional farmers who utilise the land more efficiently um, to produce grass-fed beef. So we've, we've, we're seeing continual shifts and movements, the high capital cost of, of, high, of any land in Australia, let alone high rainfall country, has got to the point where it's, it's starting to exceed, it's, its real estate value is starting to exceed its, its ability to uh, produce uh, livestock at, at a reasonable rate of return. But it, it has fits and surges, that's, a, that's an ongoing issue and it's probably an issue around the world uh, with, with increasing, there's, there's no more land being made. So there's more and more people and more and more land use options. So uh, high prices continue to rise of, of farming, of quality farming land. But the, the fundamental thing is, is, is education once again, getting back to people changing their production systems is to really think about, is, it, is, is what I'm contemplating suitable for my area, suitable for my rainfall and the type of country I'm running and really refine that down. Um, and, uh, you know, the type of genetics I'm using um, uh, 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 is the best. I mean, people who, a lot of people in Australia farm and they produce what they want to produce. They aren't market focused. The most successful farmers are very market focused and they produce what the market wants to buy. So that's really a case. Yeah, that's really the fundamental is, is, to, is to talk to industry professionals, work out what you can do on your country realistically not what you dream about but what you can do um, and then uh, implement um, uh, systems um, and and along along the line of what's realistic be real be realistic don't be a dreamer because dreamers don't get things done We have two specific topographical and, and locality and, and, and climate localities located very close to each other and, it, and it's due to elevation. So on the coastal strip from north of Sydney, basically between Sydney and Brisbane, so on the central eastern coast of Australia, there's the coastal strip before the mountain range, before what we call the Great Dividing Range. And on that coastal strip we have ticks, lots of internal parasites, um, a very high rainfall, uh, lots of grass, but it's Quite a, but the soils are mineral and trace element deficient. So we need to add that to the animal's diet. Usually that's directly given to the animals um, in, in, uh, in either by an injection or it's given in uh, lick blocks that are put out in the paddock so that they can lick as an edge animal requires to chase those trace elements such as calcium, phosphorus, uh, zinc, manganese, etc. All these elements are essential for, for growth and fertility and well-being of the animal. And the, the growing uh, season is quite long on the coast. Um, in the winter time, we do, its growth does slow. We put in, in, in green crops of oats and uh, rye grass, which is, which is always, which is consumed before it becomes, turns into grain. It basically fills that feed gap. And over the range, uh, when you get onto the Northern Tablelands, when you just go west, just a few kilometers, 20, 30, 50 kilometers, you, you, you go up in elevation uh, 800 to 1,000 metres in, in a very short 
distance and the climate's much more temperate where it's on the coast it's subtropical to tropical um, and it becomes temperate when you go up the up the range again shorter growing season you have less external and internal parasites although internal parasites are still quite prevalent a um, little bit less rainfall but the country is much more nutrient loaded um, the animals fatten quicker and easier uh, on the uh, on the tablelands so what we tend to do is take younger cattle from the coast to the tablelands to naturally gain weight grow out and fatten and then we process them from there that's our normal um, procedure so the uh, environment plays a massive role and you don't have to go very far south or north to get into country that's too dry and too inconsistent in rainfall to produce grass-fed cattle on a on a on a, on, a, on something like a regular basis on a monthly basis to have cattle ready to process um, it's a pretty pretty specific area and then you have to go down to really um, uh, south and west and east of Melbourne and northern Tasmania uh, are the only areas in Australia that really have consistent enough seasons to turn off grass-fed cattle for the premium premium restaurant and premium markets around the world. As a producer, a farmer has a range of different ways to sell his cattle when they are ready to go and we, we're one outlet. So some people we have a very strong relationship with other and we get all their cattle, others we get supplied intermittently from them depending on what we're offering as far as price and so on goes. So it's a massive, it's a large network of, of people that are we know and that produce a large number of stock. Um, and a lot of those, a lot of those cattle have my genetics from my stud breeding program in them. There are lots of brands now that you can supply different, most of the major processors have grass fed brands and offer a higher price for those grass fed supplied animals. So the industry has really responded in, in the last several, we set up Australian grass fed meats in 2013 and there wasn't a lot else like it. Now, all the major processors have brands that are certified grass-fed and antibiotic-free. Um, so that's a good thing because people who are producing those cattle have a range of markets that they can sell to. I can, you know, with with the latest developments of free trade deals with England, I see that as a huge market that we haven't access haven't had access to for my entire life for fifty years since nineteen seventy three. And uh, that's exciting because that'll go on top of or alongside of all our existing markets to the Middle East, Asia, and North America. So um, that's exciting. The, the, the future is exciting for all aspects of livestock production in Australia, all the grazing animals, uh, sheep, cattle, and goats. And um, um, it's a really, really good time to get involved in, in the business. Um, it's a really good time to expand because the, the futures look so bright and uh, it's hard to see anything stopping us um, or, or reducing it. The worldwide demand for proteins increasing, other markets, other suppliers are having difficulty, uh, obviously in the short term with COVID, but the longer term with land use, with urbanization, uh, water resources, restricted water resources, et cetera, et cetera. The world has reached the point where the ability to produce more beef specifically from uh, 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 from what land is available for it has reached a peak and to now on it'll have to intensify. 
so where that, that means feedlots but that's in that's in complete opposition to consumer demands for for greater welfare issues for animals that they and that they that they eat and um so australia and specifically the areas we're talking about um have a have a really bright future in supplying grass-fed beef and grass-fed animals to to the world um in a in that, in that very premium market um so it's the i really don't have a downside to it from a management point of view as i said um it, it you really the key to producing quality grass-fed animals that are finished is nutrition you do have to put in winter feed you do have to put in winter cover crops um you do have to supplement when it gets dry in the form of accredited grass-fed pellets to increase uh, energy levels therefore the ability of the animal to fatten um, become prime so you've got to be prepared to do these things but really that neither of those things are any different to whether you're supplying and of course genetics that's the that really is the key um, um, to be able to to have animals that grow efficiently that reach slaughter weights more quickly uh, use less resources animals that grow more slowly um, produce more greenhouse gases they take they eat more grass in their lifetime per kilo of beef produced so that's why we favor charolais genetics um, the right type of, of australian bred charolais genetics that that finish early that grow quickly and are turned off and 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 uh, make room for the next generation coming through and that's really important and as we go forward efficient efficiency and and reduced overall um, consumption of resources of animals um and all aspects of our lives are going to become increasingly more important so um that's why we favor as i said charolais genetics uh in a over over animals uh, as a sire to produce those crossbred charolais cross progeny that fit the exact markets of what i'm talking about so it's it really is about utilizing the tools available and utilizing the right genetics and you have you can't help but succeed then thank you so much mr benny for sharing your time and expertise with us like many industries constant changes in the beef industry are forcing farmers and ranchers to rethink the way they work and optimism is great to hear during challenging times but particularly when it's qualified by a healthy dose of reality and if you want to get real with your regenerative livestock plans, visit Hustler Equipment at hustlerequipment.com and see all the sustainable and regenerative farming articles in the Feed Grass for Good blog. You can go to hustlerequipment.com FGFG. Finally, if you liked this episode, please smash those five stars and give us a glowing review. It will help other people interested in sustainable and regenerative farming find us. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.